Amen. Good morning, Mars Hill. It's good to see you this morning. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the book of Acts, and we're continuing our study, and we're in chapter 9. And as CJ was praying, we're continuing to see the conversion of Saul, one of the greatest persecutors of the church, is converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, and now he becomes the persecuted proclaimer of the gospel. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and we're going to see so much here in this text this morning. We're going to notice a couple of things here. First, this new convert that baffles, that confounds the Jewish religious leaders and the Hellenists. And then we're going to see this new convert and the new family that he inherits. We want the structure of the text to be the message of the text as we glean from the text. And what we see is that, that Saul is converted, and then we see that he gains a new family that is now willing to die for him. And then it ends in verse 31 with this newfound peace in the church. And the church is being built up, it says. And then it is also multiplying. So let's read our text this morning. It's in Acts chapter 9, verse 22, down to 31. I know we ended last week with 22. We're going to pick up there again. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple." But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among the, them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Second time in the text. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This text is, is continuing this story of Saul and his conversion. And what we're going to see, last week we saw his conversion, this week we'll see his his beginning ministry, and then he, we're going to take a break from Saul for a little while. We won't see him again for several chapters because he will go away into the wilderness, he will go away to Caesarea, and he will be gone. And many say that he, at this point in the middle of this text, likely went into the Arabian desert for three years, and then he comes back to Damascus and he's preaching, and then the, the disciples send him on to Caesarea, which is likely for 10 years. So, so Saul's not immediately in the context of, of Acts for 10 to 13 years, and then he'll be brought back in, and the whole rest of the book is telling us about his missionary journeys and, and much of what God continued to do through this gospel-transformed believer. But the first thing that we see after his conversion, it says in verse 22, is that Saul increased all the more in strength. We see this new convert, and he is growing exponentially. And Luke uses a word here, in dynamo, dynamo, dynamite, power. There is a power that is happening and working in Saul 
that's not his natural ability. Now, we know that Saul is brilliant. He, Saul was the Pharisee of Pharisees, religious of religious, uh, studied under Gamaliel, the highest uh, rabbi that he could have studied under. There's so much about him that is just natural ability, clearly God-given, but he has this ability to reason and, and, to, and to argue persuasively, and, and that's who Saul was. And then Saul is converted, and Paul has that same ability, but what we're seeing here by the specific word that Luke tells us in verse 22 in Dynamo is that this is something beyond Saul at work. This is something exponentially supernatural at work that transforms Saul, that is growing Saul, and that is confounding the Jewish religious leaders. Luke is pointing us to the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit at work in the life of a gospel-transformed believer. He has, the Holy Spirit has transformed Paul, is growing him, and is now proclaiming through him, using and maximizing those natural abilities. He's now gifted him exponentially superior to all of those natural abilities, and it's just mind-blowing. Luke is telling us that the Holy Spirit is at work in this man. And then it says what the Holy Spirit is doing in him in verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That word confounding means baffled. They just cannot understand him. In verse 21 it says, weren't you the guy that was persecuting the way? They're so confused. So they're certainly confused about his conversion. Hey, just five minutes ago you were trying to kill Christians and now you're proclaiming Jesus? What gives? That, so they're confused by that. But, but it means also they're confused by something else. He is proving. That word proving means he's taking disconnected things, things that were previously disconnected, and he's bringing them together. He's taking what they know, the, the, the schemas, the scaffolding of their knowledge and understanding, where from? The Old Testament. He's taking what they know, and he's showing them how they all point to Jesus. He's bringing things that they did not understand, things that were disconnected, things that he says later were revealed to him, the mystery of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. He's bringing those two things together. Don't you see how Isaiah says this and this and it points to Jesus? Don't you see how Jesus proclaimed this and lived this way and acted this way and he's the perfect fulfillment, the sinless substitute uh, that, that, that the scriptures point to in the Old Testament? Don't you see in Genesis chapter 3 how it pointed to a son that would be born of a woman, and through that son, God would crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus. Saul is standing on the shoulders of those who went before him. This is the very same thing that Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you remember when he took him to Isaiah and he pointed him to Jesus? This is the very same thing that Stephen did. He, he's standing on the shoulders of Stephen. The very message that Stephen proclaimed in chapter 7, that long text that we looked at, is all from the Old Testament showing how the Old Testament points to Jesus. He's standing on the shoulders of Peter. That was everything Peter prayed, everything Peter preached, everything that Peter said was from the Old Testament and showing how it's always been about Jesus. He's standing on the shoulders of Jesus himself. He's doing, acting, living, speaking just like Jesus Luke chapter 24, verse 27. 
On the road to Emmaus, Jesus talks with those two disciples, and he takes those two disciples to the Old Testament, to everything that Moses said and the prophets, and he showed them how they pointed to him, Jesus. So we're seeing that Saul is truly converted, and he's proclaiming Jesus, it says. Over and over again, he's proclaiming Jesus. He's proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited, promised Messiah. He is leaving them dumbfounded and speechless, which is another way you can interpret confounded and without excuse. They can't argue with him. They stand like, like many of the Hellenists did against Stephen. They, they, they cannot withstand the arguments, the plausible arguments that he is presenting to them. They can't withstand it. That's a defensive sin. They can't, it's overwhelming how clear and obvious and evident it is in what Stephen proclaimed and what Paul, Saul, is proclaiming here. He's proclaiming from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament. The man who once preached, we get to God by keeping the law. We get to God by obeying every law and commandment in the Old Testament. Now preaches, we cannot get to God by the law. No, God comes to us by grace in Jesus Christ and by faith. We trust in his perfect obedience to the law. That's how we're saved. That's how we're reconciled to God. That's a radical change. And just as extra homework for the week, take what Saul says about himself in 1 Corinthians and Galatians and Philippians and even through Acts. Take his personal testimony, the things that he says about himself, what he used to proclaim, and compare it to what he says in Galatians chapter 2, in Romans chapter 3 and 4. Line the two things up. A man who used to say X now says exactly opposite of that. What gives Jesus? The Holy Spirit has radically changed this man. He, is, he has been gospel transformed. And there's a, a clear progression in the text that's really interesting. If you look at it, in verse 20 it says that he's proclaiming Jesus. In verse 22 it says he's proving, he's bringing disconnected thoughts together, showing Jesus. And then verse 27 and 28 it says twice he, he preaches Boldly, which means to, to proclaim or herald truth with confidence and conviction that it's true. And, and then disputing, verse 29, which is so interesting, but it says spoken, disputed in verse 29. And that means that he's not simply heralding and, and, and authoritatively, he's also reasoning. He's also getting coffee with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's also sitting down and dialoguing and saying, wait a second, wait a second, wait. You say this, but don't you understand that if you say that, then this? Don't you see how what you're saying and what you're, what you're holding to is, is inconsistent? Disputing. And it can mean that he disputed forcefully, so, so authoritatively, but it also means dialogue. So you see this clear progression of the confidence that's growing in Saul, the, 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 the preaching, the authoritative proclamation, the, the assertiveness, the confidence, the ability to reason and rationalize and articulate from the Old Testament to the New and New to Old and Jesus and all of it is growing exponentially. And that's happening in dynamo by the Holy Spirit at work in this man that he has redeemed and rescued. And now, of course, that gets old to the Jews. That gets old to those law keepers, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, which is what Jews mean in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews, 
and you see a tick mark there, that means the religious leaders plotted to kill him. This is what we naturally do when we, when we can't win an argument. We want to push the argument away. We want to get rid of the argument. And they want to go to the furthest extremes of getting rid of the truth. They want to end his life. To kill, in this context, it means to remove him from the planet. <laughs> they want to remove his life. They want to remove him from life itself. And to make it clear that that's what they want to do, Luke says it twice. First in Damascus, the Jewish religious leaders, and then later he says the Hellenists, which hits very close to home for Saul because that's his people. That, that's his brothers in arms. In both cases, they want to end him. They want to kill him. They want to remove him and the, the, the proclamation of Jesus from their presence. They want to get rid of him. Everything in Saul's life has flipped. Everything has been reversed. Saul went to Damascus a raging Pharisee, but he leaves preaching the gospel. He leaves preaching the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Everything has changed. Saul went to Damascus the persecutor of Christ, but now he leaves as the hunted, persecuted follower of Jesus. And if you study the rest of Acts, which I hope you're here to do, if you study the rest of Acts, then what you see, what you hear is that he is literally harassed from town to town. There will be Jew Jewish religious leaders that hear, hey, Saul is in that city, let's go. And they go and they follow him and harass him and, and try to overtalk him and, and speak over him and, and they even try to stone him. It's the pattern of his, the rest of his life. Saul, you will be my servant and you will suffer, but you will proclaim my name to the nations. It's remarkable what we're seeing here, and all of this tells us, and this is one of the reasons Luke is doing this, is that all of this is a legitimate transformation of the soul. Luke is giving us all this content, not only of his growth from what he used to proclaim, how he used to live, breathing out murderous threats, and now breathing out love towards those who he used to despise. Those, the, all the things that have changed in him now that, that, that we see in what he proclaims, and also the, the, the antagonism and the attack that he is experiencing. All of this is telling us this is a legitimate transformation of the soul. It's an authenticating method for Luke. Several years ago, 20, 24 years ago, I was in Ghana, West Africa, and I was helping plant churches. And I was there, and I met a man, and his name was Emmanuel Mustafa, not Mufasa, Mustafa. And Emmanuel Mustafa was previously a devout Muslim man. And one night, in the middle of the night, he had a vision of a man in blinding, dazzling bright light, come to him. And he said, come follow me. He woke up, he was terrified, Emmanuel did, Mustafa, and he, he woke up and he was terrified and he didn't know what to do and he calmed down and he went back to sleep and three times this happened, this man in dazzling bright light appeared to him and said, come follow me. He woke up and he said, I don't know what that was, I'm terrified, I'm scared, a few days later, he has a fourth vision, and this man, in dazzling bright light, comes to him and says, Come follow me. You will proclaim my name to the nations. And Mustafa said, I didn't know what that man was, who that man was, but I just 
knew that he told me to get up and start talking, and he woke up at three in the morning, and he went about his predominantly Muslim neighborhood saying what he had seen. A man in bright light had come to me and said, follow me, and I'm to proclaim him to the nation, and his Islamic brothers thought he'd lost his mind. <laughs> Who, what are you talking about? And then some of his Islamic brothers came to him, and they said, they tried to interpret for him what he saw. They tried to tell him, this is what you saw, but it made no sense to him whatsoever. And then he met, a few days later, a Christian. And at 31 years old, December 9th, 1991, he says it over and over again, said it so many times, it's, it's ingrained and in, embedded in his head. He met a Christian that articulated the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and everything clicked. Everything began to make sense. That Christian brought things that were previously un un misunderstood and brought together those things with Jesus, and it made sense to Mustafa. And 10 years after that conversion experience, I, that's when I met him. And he was already one of the most prolific church planners in all of Ghana, West Africa. And as of 2020, he has planted over 1,600 churches throughout Ghana and the surrounding nations. And his goal by 2029 is to plant 2,000 churches. He started training centers for pastors all over the country. He started a Christian school. He has over 1,000 students in that school learning about the gospel. But do you know what struck me? I mean, his story is phenomenal. His story is unbelievable. The thing that struck me when I was talking to him and he was sharing his story, the thing that, that struck me was he said, when I followed Jesus, I was immediately cut off. I was cut off by my family, my Muslim family, my Muslim father. I was cast out by my siblings and my family. I lost my friends, that neighborhood who thought I was crazy. They cut me off. They wanted to get rid of me. I lost everything. But you know, when you find and you discover a treasure buried in a field worth an inestimable, an inestimable surpassing wealth, you sell everything you have for that treasure. That's what's happened here for Saul. He's, he's, he, he is literally dying to his old life before our eyes. His old life is dying to him. They are literally trying to kill him. They want to off him. And, and everything in his old life, his old circles, his old, old associations are all dying to him. But he's inheriting something infinitely better. You and I don't face persecution like Saul does. You and I don't face persecution like Mustafa does. We, we likely may not be cut off literally and, and, and have people attempt to take our lives, but we do risk losing our reputation. We might risk losing our jobs. We might risk being cut off from family. We might risk these things, but when you discover the treasure buried in a field, it pales in comparison. And Saul here in this moment, in light of all that he was achieving and, and all the heights of success that he had and all that he accomplished and all that he was, when he saw the dazzling, sparkling wonder and beauty of Jesus, everything else lost its luster. When he saw Jesus, the searing, blinding light of Jesus, his resume was seared and burned up 
and seen for what it really is. What he says, dung. And he inherits the resume of Jesus. And he inherits something infinitely better than his past circles and past associations. What we see here in the text is he inherits a new family. And that's our second point here. In this text, we see things transition and change. And we see that Saul, the people that Saul thought loved him previously. They actually want to kill him. But those that he sought to kill and to despise actually now embrace him, accept him, love him, care for him, even risk their own lives for him. So at the same time Saul is converted and Saul is being changed and transformed, the community that Saul is inheriting also transforms in their relationship towards him. It's pretty amazing here. What we see here is what Saul lost is replaced by something infinitely better. He went to Damascus, it says with traveling companions, but he leaves with a family, with a new kingdom family that surpasses anything he could possibly have had before. Let's see how the text highlights this. First, I think it's remarkable, it says in verse 26, that when he came to Jerusalem and attempted to join this, I'm sorry, back up in verse 24, but there, there was a plot the plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates night, night and day in order to kill him. That's how devoted they were to it. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is amazing. Saul's converted. Saul's preaching the gospel. Saul's changed. And he's preaching and proclaiming the gospel, proving the gospel, disputing the gospel. And it says after many days they want to kill him. Well, let's not miss after many days, that time frame is not specific. It's a long duration. In that same time frame, as he's preaching and proclaiming, he's also making disciples. He's also leading people. They are converting. They are believing in the gospel. And they are now following Saul to get to Jesus. They want to know more about the Jesus that Saul encountered. They want to know more about the Jesus that's so transformed and invigorated his life. They want to know more about Jesus because of Saul. He already has disciples. Does that not shock you? That's amazing. He already has. Just after his conversion, after a few, few weeks here, he's preaching and he already has disciples here. This is so telling and also so convicting. It's so telling. It's another piece that Luke's providing to authenticate the transformation, the genuine gospel transformation. This man's been proclaiming Jesus and now he's making disciples in Jesus' name. He's already going out and preaching and proclaiming and, and leading others to follow Jesus. It tells us about discipleship, though we don't get a, a complete picture. If we follow Saul long enough and Paul long enough, we'll get a better picture. But even in this text, we get a little bit of a glimpse. He doesn't just concern himself with conversion, proclaiming Jesus and seeing people come to faith. He is concerned also with discipleship, as Jesus has commanded us to do which means to lead people to further and further likeness of Jesus, to nudge them on, nudge them, push them, pull them even towards Christ. There is an intentionality in discipleship. It involves words. It involves communication. It involves encouragement. It involves warning sometimes. It involves correction. It involves listening. It involves friendship. It involves relationship. It involves all of these things. And Saul 
is doing that. And if we study Saul long enough, what we'll see is that sometimes it involves him staying in a place for two to three years, like Ephesus, teaching, just teaching, just encouraging, just, just nudging and pointing towards Jesus, connecting those dots, proving Jesus from the text. And then sometimes it involves him saying, hey, you, come with me. Timothy, Titus, Mark, just to name a few. Come follow me. He says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. That was his pattern. And ultimately what we see is that discipleship is ultimately about Jesus. He's not saying, come follow me and be like me. He's saying, come follow me and be like me as I am seeking with all my might and energy to be like Jesus. So Jesus is the object, not Paul. So it's telling us something about discipleship here that he already has disciples, but it's also remarkably convicting. Because Saul already has disciples. Do we? Saul is a new convert and he's already proclaiming Jesus and he's already leading people to follow Jesus. He's already nudging others to, to, to follow and be like Jesus. Do we? Are we also doing that? Now let's be gracious to ourselves, okay? Let's, let's be kind to ourselves. I understand context and life circumstances, but let's understand the concentric circles of discipleship real quickly. First and foremost is the obligation that we have to our families. If you are married in this room, if you are a parent in this room, if you are a grandparent in this room, singles, hold on. You're not off the hook. But if you are married, if you are a parent, if you are a grandparent, then you're first and only obligation is to disciple those people. Deuteronomy 6.5, that is our greatest obligation, is to disciple the people immediately around us, to nudge them towards Jesus. We are called to that, to proclaim the one true God and to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, and to nudge others with every time, moment, and milestone towards Christ. That's our first and greatest obligation. So to, to, to be quite honest, if you're discipling, but you're not doing that, you really have no business discipling other people. You have no business going to the nations if you're not even doing it in your own home. You have no business going to the neighbors if you don't even do it with your own family. It's extremely convicting. That's our first and greatest obligation. The second is then our coworkers and our friends and our neighbors. And then the third is, our, is the nations. And in all of that, it's discipling and bringing unbelievers to faith and seeing them come to Christ and then nudging them on towards the image of Christ. That's what sanctification is. That's the goal of sanctification. And then, listen, to be honest, those circles, they, you might meet an Ethiopian eunuch near your own hometown. You're obligated. Share the gospel. And you're obligated. Disciple them. But don't forsake your family to do that. We are obligated to do this at all points, at all places. And what we see here is that Saul shares the gospel in Damascus, somewhere far from him, but he comes back to Jerusalem, somewhere near to him. He shares it with Jewish religious leaders that he doesn't even know, and then he comes home to Hellenist, his own people, his brothers, the synagogue that he grew up in and was a leader in. So it's not just about going somewhere else. It's also about those nearest to us. And it's not just about those nearest to us. It's also about those 
far from us. Now, singles, you may say, well, what about me? I don't have a family. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I'm not a grandparent. Well, you have something that all the rest of us are desperate for. You have something that Saul says, Paul later says in 1 Corinthians, that you've been gifted and must be a good steward of. You have time. You have the privilege and the honor and the gift of time to make disciples of the next generation, spiritual children. This is a gift that we have. And so we see that it's both teaching and both convicting here in the text. We also see there's another thing that shows us that Saul has inherited a new family. And that's that those he previously wanted to scatter, he now wants to join. And that word's intentional. Luke is including this word in the text in verse 26. He says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. What I love here is that we see that Paul, Saul, is not trying to go rogue. He is not trying to, 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 to live an independent, lone ranger Christian faith. He is immediately after his conversion, he is seeking to join the assembly of believers that, that's at Jerusalem. And that word join means he's, a, he's seeking to attach himself. It literally means to glue or cling to. In some context, it means union. It's the same word that's used of us to Christ. Union to Christ. By union to Christ, we inherit a union to his people. And Saul, if there's anyone in the Bible that has... The, the theological acumen, the theological ability, the, the now conversion, the spiritual ability to, to say, I'm going to go it myself. I'm going to go it alone. I can do this by myself. If there's anybody that has that opportunity, it's Saul. Not you and I. Saul converted, now Paul. But he doesn't. He says, I desperately need the family. I need to attach myself to the believers to a local assembly. And that phrase, join, is so important here. It's amazing. What, what we're seeing here is he's seeking to attach himself to this group of believers, to yield himself to this group of believers. And I think it's so important for us to see because in this room there are so many varied views of church membership. This is not the word membership. And I know there's so many people who have been burned by churches and church membership in the past. I've had so many of those conversations. And I know there's so many different views. And you, you listen, you need to understand, Mars Hill would say, and we would all say in all full agreement, membership is not in the Bible. But something deeper and something greater is. Family. By virtue of joining Christ and being in union to Jesus, we are in union to the body of believers, the, the kingdom of God, the, 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 the universal body of Christ. And many of you would point out and say, hey, well, see there, I'm, I'm part of the body of Christ. I don't have to be part of a local assembly. Let me ask you why Saul goes about planting churches. Why does he go into towns after town, after town, see people come to faith and establish elders. He told Titus to do it. He told Timothy to do it. And establish churches, groups of people in a location committed to Christ and committed to one another. 
because we can't do it alone. Because we desperately need one another. Because we must be in local assembly. We cannot know the whole universal body of Christ and they can't know us, but a local assembly can know us can see our blind spots, and we can see theirs, and we need one another, and can use their giftings to encourage, and I can use my giftings to encourage together. So, so Saul is already trying to join those he tried to rip apart. A third thing we see here is that those who once feared him now risk their lives and call him brother, family. They risk their lives for him. There's a pattern again in the text. It says in verse 25 that the disciples took him, his disciples took him to spare him, to rescue him out of Damascus. And then verse 27, it says that Barnabas took him and brought him. And then in verse 30, it says the brothers brought him. There's a consistent pattern here that the family's relationship to Saul has changed. The community of believers now view him differently. They are attaching themselves to him, and they're serving him, and they're willing even to risk their lives. Don't you understand, as they were lowering him down that rope, they're taking their own lives in their own hands. They're risking their lives. They're risking arrest. They're risking death to preserve his life. They're they're willing to die so that he might live. Who's that sound like? Jesus. They're acting as Jesus towards him. This is remarkable. And then how does all this come about? How does this, and this is, this is so amazing to me, how does, how does this new convert and, and who's dying to the darkness of his old circles and old associations and they're dying to him, how does this new convert, how is he brought into the new kingdom family and then experience the peace that they have together and with God. How, does he, how do these two things literally get gripped and brought together by the one in the middle of the text named Barnabas, who took, it means to grasp, and brought together Saul. He dragged Saul into the context of the apostles and the disciples at Jerusalem. And he dragged those reluctant and hesitant disciples and apostles to Saul. He literally stands in the gap as a mediator. He, at great cost to his own reputation, at great cost and risk to himself, at, at, at the, for the sake, at, at risk of his own name, he brings this man who everyone thinks is just tricking them. Literally, they don't even think he's a disciple. They're worried that he, this is just a ruse. They're just, he's just trying to trick us so he can arrest us or kill us. And, and Barnabas, get over here. You get over here. And he brings them together. Now, this is why it's so amazing. Think about for just a second how their attitude turns towards Saul. Because in verse 28, it says, after he brought them together, he went about among them. That's just how it reads in the text. Verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem freely, preaching boldly. How does their attitude towards him change and his attitude in relationship to them change? It, it changes by the one in the middle, the son of encouragement. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him 
and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name. And, and by the way, those three things are the markers of an apostle. He saw Jesus, he heard from Jesus, he was commissioned and proclaimed Jesus. Barnabas is saying something here. But what Barnabas is doing, I don't want us to miss what he's doing in this moment and what he, who he is pointing us to. Every time we see Barnabas, save one in Galatians, every time he's bringing people in. He's tr- truly the son of encouragement, the son of Paracletos, the son of the Holy Spirit, the one who's the comforter encourager. He's bringing the two together. He does it with Saul. He does it, we'll see in Acts 11, with the, the new believers at Antioch. He'll do it later with John Mark, who ironically and providentially, Saul wants to get rid of. And, and Barnabas says, no, Saul, he's with us. We're not cutting him off. Just because he disappointed you, because he failed, because he did, just because he didn't live up to your expectations, we're not cutting him off, which is the gospel. Barnabas stands in the middle and brings two hostile parties together. Barnabas stands in the middle at great risk to himself and brings two together. He stands in the middle and reconciles two parties that are at odds. He brings them together. Barnabas looks a lot like Jesus. That's how the text, he sits right in the middle of the text, and that's how the text changes. That's how Paul begins to experience all of his old life is dying to him, and he's dying to it, and he's being brought in. He's being brought in and reconciled to this new kingdom family he's inheriting, and the new peace that they're going to experience, he's being brought in by one that walks like Jesus, talks like Jesus, sounds like Jesus, smells like Jesus. Everywhere Barnabas goes, he's an encourager. And it's so wonderful and so encouraging to see because Barnabas is pointing us to Jesus. He's also pointing us to how we are to live. At the same time, we must be and need to join ourselves, attach ourselves to a local assembly. The church is in desperate need of people in that local assembly to reach out and embrace to bring in, to usher in, to bring into the new kingdom family, to connect to the new kingdom family, to to root in the new kingdom family, and to bring the new kingdom family that's standing at distance and saying, I don't know about that guy. I'm not sure about that girl. I'm not sure if I can do that. Get over here. This is your new brother and sister. Get over it. Put your arm around them. And that's that's what Barnabas literally is doing. Come on, let's go. You're part of the family now. We desperately need, oh, that we would be a church of Barnabases that would, that would bring in, that would breathe life everywhere we go, to everyone we encounter. And notice where it leads. Notice at the same time what, what Saul is doing here. Saul is dying to his old relationships and circles and associations, and they're dying to him, and he stands really sort of isolated in the middle here between the new kingdom family and the old that he's lost. Mustafa, my friend in in Ghana, West Africa, said the same thing. That's what he felt like. I was lost between, I didn't yet know fully until I met that Christian that shared the gospel with me and brought me in. And the same thing's happening here. He stands in between. They want to kill him, and they're not sure about him. And there's a desperate need for Barnabas to do what he does, to act as a mediator, to to act as Jesus does, and to bring him in. And that leads us to the new peace. 
So, so let's look here in verse 31 at the result of Saul's conversion, at the result of Barnabas' encouragement and, and bringing in, and the result of the church receiving this outsider. Verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Real quickly, three things I think that are clear in this text. First, it tells, it tells us how bad, how big a deal Saul's persecution was. Jack mentioned this last week. It, it, it tells us the fact that this one man persecuted the church to such a degree that when he is converted, the church in, in the region of Judea and Galilee and Samaria experienced peace. That tells us the severity of how big a deal and how serious Saul's con conversion was or persecution was and then his conversion. But I think it's telling us more. It says that they experienced peace, which that word is irene, and it means the opposite of turbulence. It, it means the opposite of chaos. It, it's a state of calm. And then in that state of calm, in that context of peace, the church is being built up. And Luke uses an, another amazing specific word, Oikodomos. I'm not trying to impress with Greek this morning. It's just important. Oiko means family. Domos means build. The kingdom family of God is built up. In the context of this piece, the church is being built up. The family, he calls it, is being built up, which means to be strengthened. It means to be equipped. It means to be encouraged. It means to sanctify. Like what words do we need to use here? This is what he's talking about. Is being, it's being built up. Now we think immediately, oh look, the family of God, the church is being built up. It's, it's growing, which is the phrase, kingdom of family is growing. And what we're tempted to think by the, the text and by the context is it's growing numerically. That's not what Luke highlights first. Numerical growth is the last word in the sentence, multiplied. But look what comes before it. Look at all the things that come before it. Luke's concern is not numerical growth. Luke's concern in highlighting the peace that gave the context is the built up inwardly before outwardly. The inward spiritual growth, the inward sanctification, the inward Fear of God, which means to grow in our obedience and faithfulness to God. The inward comfort of the Holy Spirit, which means the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit constantly doing? Look at Christ and look at who you are in light of Him. Identity. As the church is growing in its fear and faithful and obedient, obedience to God, it's growing in its understanding that it is, each of us, our sons and daughters before the Most High God. Because of the work of Jesus. What's the point? Long before there's ever any talk, strategy, pragmatism about numerical growth, there's an inward deepening spiritual growth. And that is what transforms and leads to numerical growth. I, there's just so much talk. There's so many conversations about 
church strategy and church growth and missions and evangelism and do this and do that and if this and if that and if we could only do and we could only do. And it's all pragmatism. It's all practical and in strategy and, and, and administration. And I'm not dismissing it outright and saying it's not important. I'm saying it is infinitely secondary to what's most important which is being rooted and built up in Jesus, in the gospel. We don't grow by doing. If the gospel's true, we don't grow by doing first. We grow by being first. And then we grow. And then we consider. And then we do. It's just so important that we see the right order, the same order of our identity in Christ that overflows into our growth in Christ is the same order in the church. The same application. But then there's another very convicting thing I think that this text tells us or challenges us with. It's extremely convicting if we consider it. The church is being built up and it's multiplying during this season of rest. The church is being built up and multiplying during the season of rest and peace, and if we look at Acts, by comparison, we are not persecuted like what we've read so far in Acts. By comparison, we are not persecuted like our brothers and sisters around the world in, in a whole host of contexts that are ripped out of their homes just like an Acts, that, that, that knives are put to their throat just like an Acts, that are arrested for their faith. By comparison, we are not being persecuted like this context in Acts. So by comparison, we are experiencing a relative peace. The question is, are we maximizing, making the most of our peace to be built up? Are we making the most of every day and every moment and every opportunity to personally grow in Christ, to learn more of the Word, to learn more of the kingdom family, to spend more time in community together, to disciple new believers, to lead them to faith, to, to share the gospel and to lead people, to nudge them towards Christ. Are we making the most of our relative peace to be built up for the future day of persecution and adversity Whenever that may come, we are responsible for what we're doing with our peace right now. Are we making the most of our relative peace to be built up? Are we being strengthened and equipped for the adversity and persecution to come? Are we sharing the gospel and discipling new believers for the day to come? Is our kingdom family being strengthened because you and I have found a treasure in a field we're selling everything else for and we can't stop talking about it? Are we being strengthened and, and, and encouraged because we're so overwhelmed by the staggering grace of God in Jesus that we, we're, it, it's bleeding out in our conversations like Barnabas. It's bleeding out in our conversations and our actions like Barnabas. It's, it's bleeding out into our, our, our proclamation and, and disputing like Saul and, and leading people to Christ and then not just worried about conversion but worried also about sanctification and leading them on towards Christ. Are we are we doing that in our time of peace? 
These are questions that we have to wrestle with that this text brings us to. We see this new convert, and so many things could be said about him, and then we see this new family that he inherits, and then we see the new peace that they are being built up within, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church grew. The church multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. So much, as always, so much in the text, so much that we could spend time on. We just, we just glance over. Lord, may we be convicted, Holy Spirit, convict us of sin. Convict us of righteousness, where, our, where righteousness is found, who the righteous one is, who the object of discipleship is, who the object of our sanctification is, who the object of any church growth is, convict us. Convict us of judgment. Of judgment, if we don't have Jesus, it, it, we, will, we will be cut off. And give us hope. Give us encouragement. If we are in Christ, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we be committed to discipling the first obligation we have, which is to our children, to our families, to our spouses. Lord, and may it bleed out as we nurture and nourish and grow. May it bleed out into our neighbors and our neighborhood and our community and the nations. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.